Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. Hear now from God's word. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen in its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then, opening up their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. Have you, any of you ever thought that this story we're studying today was just weird? Anybody? Raise your hands. Okay, a few people. Good. The rest of you haven't paid enough attention. This is a weird story, and it only occurs in the Gospel of Matthew and no other Gospel. So what in the world is going on in this story, and why do we have it in the Gospel of Matthew that these three men, well, does it say three men? We'll get to that a little bit later. That these men from the east came and visited Jesus early in his life and gave him worship and adoration and praise and gave him gifts. What is the significance of Matthew including this when none of the other gospel writers included this story? Well, this story has captured the imagination of lots of people throughout time and literally 161 years ago, or actually... Is 161 years ago? Yeah, 161 years ago. Is that, what does that equal? Is that 1859? I might have done the math wrong. Yeah, that's right. 161 years ago, tomorrow, a young guy sat at home who had been sick for over a month. He was starting to get over his illness, whatever he had, a cold or something like that. Many of us have been sick for a long time. And he had been home from work, and he couldn't go to worship on Epiphany. He couldn't go celebrate the celebration of the the Epiphany of Jesus Christ. And so he sat down instead um, because he couldn't go to church, and he read the scripture for that day. How many of you have ever done that? A few of you. Good. Awesome. No young people raise their hands. 
If you can't make church, at least you can watch on YouTube, but at least look up the scripture and think and ponder on it, right? And so that's what he did. This guy was only 21 years old, William Chatterton Dixon. He's from Bristol, England. Alan? Yay, Bristol? Yeah. (laughs) He's from Bristol, England, and he's sitting at home, and he's reflecting on Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as the reading for Epiphany that year, and he's reflecting on what God did in bringing these three men from the East to worship Jesus, and he comes up with this hymn, the hymn that we sung for our responsive song, As With Gladness, Men of Old. And the thing about this that's interesting, the thing about this, this hymn that's interesting is that most of the hymns in England written in this day, we've already seen quite a few of them as we've been looking at the hymns of Advent and Christmas, they were written by clergy. Poetry that clergy wrote as they reflected on scripture. And most of them, or many of them as we've seen, have been rushed to the musician to create music in like two or three days uh, so that they might be able to sing it that next Christmas. And yet this hymn, William Dix wrote, was a lay person. He was not a clergy person. In fact, what he was probably doing at this time, he was working for his grandfather in a candle shop. And so this guy was nobody special, no theological training, was just among the middle class, and here he was reflecting on Scripture intentionally, and then writes what I think is one of the most beautiful poems reflecting on this story in Matthew that's ever been written. Now, William Chatterton Dix wrote over 200 other hymns, one of which you guys all know very well. He wrote, What Child Is This? And so he was a very prolific and famous hymn writer, and yet his life was one that you would not expect a famous hymn writer to come out of. His father named him after a famous famous English poet, And he wrote, he had written a biography about this poet, but it was shortly after that that he lost his job as a surgeon because he was was an alcoholic. And he had been struggling with alcoholism his entire adult life, and he eventually got put in jail because of his debts to people because he didn't have work to, to do because he had been thrown out of his business as a surgeon. And so he fled England and left his family abandoned in England, and he went to the United States, well, to America, to the Americas. Uh, and he, he tried to um, re, resurge his life, bring it back, but he was continued to be plagued by his past and plagued by alcoholism for the rest of his life. Eventually, he was shamed in a public writing in England, and it caused the entire family to be ashamed because it was found that his very biography he wrote, that he named his son, his middle name Chatterton after this poet, was completely forged. And so he was shamed as somebody who was actually a fraud. And so this, this is the upbringing, and he was only eight when his dad left originally, ten when his dad finally cut ties with the family completely. This was the legacy that William Dix had. And yet here he is reflecting on scriptures and writing beautiful hymns that we sing to this day. An unexpected course for somebody to come to the foot of Jesus and his life to be transformed in such a way that he creates beautiful memories for the rest of us for all of time. It's kind of a great poetic symbolism of the very story that he was writing about and as with gladness men of old, right? Here in this story in Matthew, what is it that we're looking at? We're looking at these unexpected men coming to pay homage, to pay homage to the king of the Jews. Why? 
What importance was the land of the Jews to these men who came from the east? Why would they go as great men? Because we're going to look at this. What does this uh, word actually mean? In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The actual Greek word there is magoi. Magoi, which where we get kind of the word uh, magician from. And in fact, it's actually used in the book of Acts to refer to a fake magician who was going around and causing problems on the island of Cyprus. And so there's, there's times where this phrase is used in a negative connotation within the Greek New Testament. But what did it mean? It was actually a transliteration from a Persian word that shares the same root as the Greek word mega. And so it literally just means great ones, is all it means. And so it doesn't even carry the connotation necessarily that they were wise. It doesn't carry the connotations any way that they were magicians. We get that somewhat from how they end up at the, footstep of Jesus, at the footsteps of Jesus. We know that these men, and the only thing we know about these men, is that they were studying the stars. They were studying the stars and they were waiting for something specific to happen that was in their prophecies that the king of the Jews would be born when they see his star arise. How did these people who were not Jewish come to know about a prophecy that the Jewish king would be born when this star appeared? Well, the Jewish people had spent hundreds of years in exile in the eastern countries, especially in Persia and in Med uh, the land of the Medes. And so these people had found out about the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah from rabbis who lived in their land during those years of exile. And somehow one of their own prophecies probably got attached to it with this star thing because there's nowhere in Jewish scriptures where we get this idea of a physical star denoting the birth of the Messiah. There's no, no prophecies that really can be pulled from. There's some metaphorical notices or, or mentions of star coming out of Israel, but it has nothing to do with a physical star, and it definitely give, doesn't give any specific star or specific time frame in which a star is supposed to come. And so these guys kind of mix it in their own religion, and somehow God knows all of this is going on, and he uses this to his own advantage so that we might see the glory of what he's done and becoming human being as a baby Jesus, to be worshipped as the king of all things, not just as the king of Israel. Now, we did mention a little bit ago that there, there's this idea that there was three magi, ma, there's three magi, the three men, three wise men that came. Now, where do we get this idea that there was three? The three gifts. So very early on, the Christians who were worshiping in, the, in reading this story and reflecting on it noticed that there was three gifts and so that just an assumption came up that there must have been three people in the party. Because wouldn't they all be carrying gifts, right? And so there must have been only three, although we don't know that. There could have been hundreds in that. And if you notice the painting that we have for today on the cover of your bulletin, look at that crowd. And it's full of wise men. I love this painting. I chose this specifically because it's not three men coming. It's an entire group, a big band of men who are coming in to worship this new king. But somehow throughout history, it got attached that there was three. Tertullian, who was a North African teacher and theologian in the second and third century, he, or third and fourth century, he began to teach that these were kings and that they were a response to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60 that the kings would come and bring their light uh, to the, the Messiah. 
And so he began to teach that they were kings. Origen in the second century noticed that the three gifts had symbolism to them that matched other symbolism in scripture. And he began to say that the gold represented what? Represented the, the, the royalty of, of uh, Jesus, that he was king because gold was often associated with the royalty of Israel. And that frankincense was a representation of what? The divinity of Jesus, because frankincense, in its most often use in the Old Testament, was that it was an incense to be used in worship in the temple. And then myrrh was in reference to his what? His death or his mortality. The fact that he was human, that he was mortal like the rest of us. Um, because myrrh very often is used in that time and in, in the Old Testament scriptures as a kind of perfume to go along with a dead body in order for it to not stink as bad and a way to prepare a dead body for decay. And so the origin began to teach about these three different gifts and what they meant. And so this, this association began to pop up about these three men who came. And eventually the three men got names. Did you guys know that? Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar. Caspar. That these three men were kings, came from Tertullian, and that these three men came from three different nations. Do you guys know which ones? That they came from India, they came from Egypt, and they came from Greece, which Greece makes no sense because it's not even from the east, right? Uh, he must have like traveled a long, like either all the way around the planet this way, right? Or he traveled a long way to come from the east. But it's this way of the early tradition of the church recognizing that these are important men and that they came and that they were worshiping at Jesus' feet, that they, in fact they were kings of other nations that came and bowed down to the king of Israel, the king really of all of creation, because that's what we are to do. Because we are to come and bow down before the king of all things. And then he says that they come and they ask this question, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Now the idea of this star is interesting because it seems to change within the passage itself, right? Within the passage itself, it seems like a star rises in the night sky like a normal star that we see up in the sky, and that it's there and it's pointing, it's kind of in the west, and so it's pointing the direction that the, the, Israel, the Jewish king was coming, the, the Messiah was born. But then later in the story, the story what do we see? The, the star seems to move as they get close and actually begins to kind of push them towards a specific direction in Bethlehem and actually brings them to a specific location. And then all of a sudden it stops. It disappears. So what in the world is going on with this star? Who knows? Is it a comet that appeared and they thought was a star because they didn't know about comets in those days? Was it some other kind of phenomenon that was happening? We have no idea. Maybe it was a time-traveling satellite from some experiment far in our future that happened to get flung into... Sorry, I'm a sci-fi nerd. It could be anything, right? Who knows? Is it even important? In the grand scheme of things, not really. And yet we get obsessed about these little details and trying to find out about the truth of them. The bigger question, the question that we should be asking is what significance did it hold for Matthew when he wrote this story and he was the only one to include it in his gospel? And here's what's significant about Matthew. Matthew is a gospel that is very, very Jewish. 
Matthew is a gospel that is trying to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah from all the prophecies that they had learned about through all of their history. And so Matthew is trying to be an apologetic for the Jews to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king of Israel and of of course of the whole earth because of the fact that he's the Messiah. And so here is Matthew trying to prove to everybody that he deserves Jewish worship. And so, of course, an interesting idea that he would be worshipped not just by the Jews, and in fact, we're going to look in a few seconds about the irony here in this story, but that he would be worshipped by the entire royalty of the world. That those would come from outside of the Jewish religion, Gentiles, and that even they would recognize that this was the Messiah. So Matthew, trying to prove deeply that they are the Messiah, he includes these three gifts. These three gifts. The interesting thing about these three gifts is all three are used at different times in the Old Testament within temple worship. What were most of the utensils inside of the temple at least gilded with? Gold. And what did they do? What did they burn most of the time during sacrifices and during worship within the temple? Some kind of incense, oftentimes frankincense. And then they often dealt with burial and marriage and other things like that 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 the, the perfume myrrh would have been used for. And so within the full worship of the temple, There's these three different items. And so I think Matthew is giving us an indication that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the temple once pointed towards. Jesus becomes the new temple. His church becomes the embodiment of what the temple was pointing to into the future. And so we are now the temple, Jesus' body, the church. This is where Matthew is pointing for us, and he's talking about these gifts. And so, in reality, these gifts are really representative of each one of us within the church. These gifts are you, and they are me. They are the use of worship within the church. Those who come and adore the king of all of the universe, those who come and lay themselves at the feet of this helpless baby, recognizing that he is the most significant human to ever be born. What an amazing story that you are invited into. But this story comes with a warning. Did you guys notice the warning? When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. Why was Jerusalem frightened when King Herod was frightened? Or why was was Jerusalem frightened, huh? Because you don't want to have a mad king. Literally, he was mad and then he was angry as well you would be at threat of yourself being in danger with a king as dangerous as Herod being angry and being paranoid and, and running around. And we see later that what, what Herod plans is that he's going to go and he's going to kill every single child who was born from the time that the star appeared until that day just to make sure that this boy can never be an opposer of his throne, of his royalty, of his claim in all of Judea. So here's the man who's supposed to be ruling the people of God. He himself is not a Jew, but he's very much not very knowledgeable about what the Jews believe. 
Because what is the first thing he does, he does when these men who aren't Jewish come and ask for where the Jewish king was born? He goes and he asks, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Wouldn't you assume a good Jew at the time would have known that, right? And so he's not a Jewish man. He is actually um, from a different heritage. But he himself knows the importance of the Messiah, having heard about it. And so he goes and he consults with the rabbis and the scholars. And he asks them where this Messiah was supposed to be born. And his paranoia, he rejects the king of God. And he chooses selfishness and self-protection. I think it's a warning. Just because we call ourselves Christians, just because we are, quote-unquote, the people of God, doesn't mean that we always see God's movement accurately. No. And in fact, in this story, it's the most unexpected place, the most unexpected people who do accurately see the movement of God, right? Right? And including not just this story, but the stories found in Matthew or in Luke as well, we see other unexpected people. Who? The shepherds in the fields. Right? And so over and over we begin to see God kind of turning the world upside down. The most expected people, the rulers of the day, the scholars of the day, the priests of the day, they miss it. And it's the most unexpected people who receive it and who accept it and get it. It's a warning to us to not take it for granted. For us to not be people who just assume that we are the people of God and to not miss where God is moving and have our eyes open and know God so well that we could see when he's doing something. Now the great thing about the stories we find in Matthew and in Luke is that there are the people of God who do recognize it, right? So it's not all is lost. There's Simeon. And there's Anna who are in the the temple and they recognize it, right? There's John the baptizer who even as a fetus in Elizabeth's womb leaps in joy at, at the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. And so there are the people of God who do get it. But I think the irony of this story still stands as a warning for us. Are we going to see where God is moving? Are we going to anticipate and expect that God is going to move? And are we going to accept it and then live into it and respond to what God is doing in our own lives? Or are we going to be like Herod and miss it? Where are we in our own lives? As we worship Jesus, as we claim him as our king, as we come to this table that he's prepared for us to sit around, do we have our eyes open to see how this meal represents so much more than a cup, little cup of grape juice and a little piece of bread? That this meal represents what Jesus is doing in your life right now in the presence of the Holy Spirit as he is guiding you and he is drawing you and directing you more deeply into his presence so that you might be his image, that you might be his ambassador to all you encounter outside of our doors. Do you recognize this table as a place where you meet Jesus and where Jesus meets you And where you come to love him more because of what he's done for you. You come to worship him and give your life and your all to him. Because he gave his all for you. Now this, uh, at close of our Christmas season, this epiphany. As you go and you recognize Jesus as your king, as your Messiah, as your Lord. 
Don't miss his activity in your life. Have your eyes open to see in the most unexpected places where he's working in and around you for his glory this Christmas season.